0: So hey guys we're back, and happy new year to everybody. Um, we are coming to the end of twenty twenty three I want to thank everybody on the podcast uh, listeners out there, you podcasters out there. We recorded almost thirty one hours of podcast in um, twenty twenty three and um, it was fabulous, tons of feedback i can 't thank everybody enough who's subscri- uh, subscribing and hitting that follow button wherever you 're listening or subscribing. On YouTube, so I can't thank everybody enough. Today's podcast is no exception. It is it's going to be fantastic. Uh, We've interviewed this guy before. His name is Sam Dolan. Now, Sam Dolan, uh, the last time we spoke was June 11th of 2022. Uh, You can find him back in my uh, my uh, what do you call it history. Go scroll through, find it, because the reason I want you guys to do, if you haven't listened to the Sam Dolan, the first one, it really, we really talk about his beginnings in television and uh, and creating documentaries and being in the movie Tombstone and where he grew up and how he got into where he's at. We're not going to cover any of that today. So go back to that first interview. Today we're going to be talking about his new book um, that he's got out now. It's called The Line Riders. The Border Patrol, Prohibition, uh, and the Liquor War on the Rio Grande, um, and I can't wait to dive into this one. Before we do that, I want to thank my friends at the Tombstone Epitaph, Arizona's longest running newspaper. Uh, be sure to go to tombstoneepitaph.com, uh, be a subscriber, get it delivered right to your door, you're going to love it. Sam does some uh, articles here and there, but it's like 20 plus pages, and it's just Just fantastic Western history. Of course, I want to thank my second family at the Wild West History Association. Uh, You can be a a member and join and go to wildwesthistory.org, wildwesthistory.org. And uh, and join, it's 75 bucks, you get the journal and you just pack full. And in 2023, um, we're uh, we're going to the Alamo for our roundup. So we're going to the Alamo for our roundup. Did I say that we did eight, 31 hours in 2023? I think I screwed up on that. It was 31 hours in 2022. But um, I'm already ahead of myself thinking about next year. But I want to thank everybody. So again, go to wildwesthistory.org and be a subscriber, become a member, and give, get the journal and some amazing people delivered right to your door. So back in June... Uh, I had actually before that, I think around January, I had bu- I had bought the book, Hell Paso, um, because there was a recommendation by our mutual friend, uh, John Bosnecker. And John had made this recommendation on Facebook that said, you've got to go get this book. Well, John says it, I'm going to do it. And, um, and I went down and I bought the book. And it's, and I, and I've said this before to Sam, so it's nothing that's a secret. It's a slow read. And the reason I say it's a slow read is it's, it's so packed full of information and it's extremely detailed. So if you just blow by something, sometimes I'd read it. Oh God, did I read that right? And I'd read that page again. And sometimes I'd go back and reread the chapter because it just, there was so much to it. But Sam fueled my interest in El Paso, the town, and so I went there for business, and I couldn't, you know, I ended up at the Concordia, a cemetery, went and saw John Wesley harden's gravesite, and, I, and that was just the tip of it. Well, he did the podcast with me in June, fabulous podcast, we learned so much about Sam and his life, but then in the middle of that, you know, we're, it was realizing in my head, like, there's got to be more, and then, lo and behold, line writers show up. So, welcome, sir. Thank you. I Thank you for being here. Happy New Year.
1: Well, Happy New Year, Mike, and thank you for that lovely introduction. I appreciate it.
0: I'll I, i, I I'll follow you around when you become rich and famous and you're in a private plane and, you know, go out on stage. Oh, my God, it's Sam. I'll do your introduction for free.
1: Well, that's great. I, I That might be a long wait, but uh, I appreciate that. Uh, for free. <laughs> Listen,
0: I'm cheap. You know, just a free beer and bag of peanuts, and I'm good. Um, <laughs> well, that's a deal. <laughs> so y- you wrote a new book. It's called The Line Riders, and you've correct me if I'm wrong. Was there information that you had dug up in writing Hell Paso that you began to push aside to where all of a sudden I've got this whole other story I want to tell about the line riders? or were they two separate?
1: No, they're all sort of connected, and I have a a third book, my first book, Cowboys and Gangsters, that was uh, published in 2016. That was sort of where the research for the Line Riders began. Mm -hmm. Um, I had a lot of information, I I did a lot of research on both the Customs Service and the Immigration Border Patrol during the 1920s. I wasn't able to use, you know, very much of that for cowboys and gangsters and so I held on to it and then I continued to do uh research while working on El Paso. And then there were characters and incidents, especially in the early twentieth century there in El Paso, Texas, that I sort of held on to. I felt that they would fall within uh the Line Riders project um, just it would just be a better fit. Uh, of course, I started writing The Line Riders uh, the year before the pandemic began, and I'm sure you'll hear this from other authors, and I certainly talked to other historians about this a lot lately, and the pandemic had a huge impact on research and the writing of books, because if you do this work and you take it seriously, you know, you're constantly working with public agencies, whether it's, you know... Uh, District courthouses in various counties, um, the National Archives, obviously, if you need federal records, and I often do. Well, of course, all of that, all of that shut down, and it had a huge impact on the book I was writing. Speaking frankly, I had, I had intended to cover a sort of a longer span of time with this book, and um, I have a lot of material that I could still have used, but I ended up focusing primarily on the prohibition. Era, um, I felt that it had, it was relatively untapped. There just uh, there haven't been that many books written about prohibition in the Southwest in terms of a sort of a law enforcement uh, sort of angle. And uh, you know, when, when you talk about prohibition with people, they automatically think of well, New York and Chicago and Al Capone and, and and places and people like that. They very rarely think of the American West. And especially the Southwest, but as I illustrate in the book, the, the you know the international boundary, the border with Mexico, um, was a very active place for smuggling and bootlegging, uh, and as a result, there was a considerable amount of violence uh, during the uh, the 1920s and and well into the 1930s there. And so that's really what I cover uh, in the book. And fortunately, I was able to tap into a wonderful resource. Uh, through the National Archives uh, and researchers that helped me access uh, some of those documents and then direct requests I made to branches of the National Archives before the pandemic and then once sort of the restrictions had lifted. Um, so yeah, the book primarily covers uh, the Prohibition era, but if you're reading it closely, there are connections to both Cowboys and Gangsters and El Paso as well.
0: So January of 1920 the 18th amendment is passed it went into effect um here's what you what it says is it went into effect for the sale of intoxicating spirits was outlawed yes. and so the thirst for liquor didn't just go away people just didn't pass the 18th amendment and though go, oh good I'm dry like it it continued and all of this stuff was coming across from Mexico, and it's, and, and I'm reading another book, and like I told you, I'm reading uh, John Bosnecker's book about Frank Hamer. Like there was so much action going on between Juarez and El Paso, and along the Mexican border and the Texas border that the need for law and law enforcement was, was really needed.
1: Well, that's 100% correct and in truth as far as the southwestern states are concerned like uh, say specifically Arizona, New Mexico and Texas a series of state prohibition laws that were passed uh, between those three states between 19 you know 14 and 19 18 19, 19, plus wartime restrictions so a lot of a lot of folks forget that during World War 1 uh, the federal government passed a number of wartime uh, measures aimed at restricting the production of uh, alcohol for you know drinking purposes and the sale of alcohol in certain places where you might have a city that or a town that's in close proximity to a military installation. Uh, they wanted to keep our forces that were gearing up to go overseas to go fight in France. They wanted to keep them sober. Of course, that was, you know, uh, a hopeless effort, but that was the idea. And so towns like El Paso, you know, El Paso, if you, if you were to look at that town in like the spring of 1918, um, El Paso was kind of coming out of its frontier period, sort of like wild west, uh, you know, time frame, it still had sort of vestiges of that. It still had a lot of saloons. There was still an element of El Paso that was very much uh, sort of entrenched in its frontier experience. Well, World War One sort of killed that off. The proximity of Fort Bliss and a number of other satellite uh, camps and installations uh, for forces that were preparing to mobilize to go to France. Uh, and also, we're still posted on the border uh, to monitor and police the border because of what was going on in Mexico uh, during the latter years of the the Mexican Revolution, well, there were a lot of soldiers in El Paso. And so the wartime uh, liquor restrictions shuttered all the saloons there. And so you already had bootlegging and smuggling happening along that particular stretch of the border before January of 1920. In fact, the first immigration officer uh, that was killed in a deliberate act of violence uh, anywhere on the border uh, in American history was killed in El Paso in the spring of 1919, uh, probably nine months before uh, the Volstead Act and the 18th Amendment actually went into effect uh, for enforcement purposes. And so you already had a situation on the border. And even a few years before that in Arizona, there was a lot of smuggling going on, and of course, Violence that came along with it, and so the prohibition era in terms of sort of a law enforcement uh experience, if you will and and the violence associated with it, that began even before January of nineteen twenty
0: so there there's violence they're bringing liquor into America from Mexico, sure, and then it's determined because a lot of the men that became line riders or river guards were Texas Rangers. Were they not?
1: That's correct. Um, a lot of the customs officers in particular, now immigration officers also, but the customs service was staffed, particularly in Texas with a lot of former Rangers. Uh, the work was essentially very similar, especially for Texas Rangers that had been, you know, in companies that were posted in West Texas or in South Texas on the river. Um, the job was kind of translatable. The skills were uh, most of these officers were appointed by customs collectors. So for a lot of these customs officers, there were no civil service regulations. So if you had experience as a Texas Ranger, you had served in one of the companies during the old days of the Frontier Battalion or even during the early State Ranger uh, period in the early 20th century, you had sort of the requisite skills. You could ride a horse, you know, you, you know, you could provide your own weapons. There were really no uniforms uh, for most of these officers that were sort of working in the outside force out on you know, out on the range. Uh, so a lot of former rangers, uh, guys like Herf Carnes, uh, he and his brother had both been Texas rangers. Uh, his brother had been killed as a ranger in a shootout in 1910. Uh, Herf Carnes became a customs officer. Um, uh, Joe Sitter uh, was another Texas ranger that became uh, a customs inspector. He was killed uh, in 1915 in West Texas. Uh, uh, Robert Rumsey, Was another officer that I talk quite a bit about, uh, in the early chapters of this book. Uh, Rumsey had been a ranger, uh, in the early 20th century and then became a customs officer. The customs officers, the federal officers were paid better. And so it was sort of an attractive, you know, transition. Um, I can't quite remember what a private. You know, cause the Rangers at this time, they were under the adjutant general. So it was still sort of a, a military sort of structure. So you enlisted in the Rangers and for a long time, you didn't even have a badge. Mm-hmm. You had a commission. You enlisted in the Rangers as a private and you drew so much a month. Well, the federal officers, their, you know, per annum salaries were, were better. And so a lot of these rangers made a transition to uh, the Customs Service and the Immigration Service. Uh, One officer I write about, uh, Jim Dunaway, he had been a Texas ranger. Um, He had a mixed reputation. I believe he served under Captain McDonald and Captain Henry Ransom, of course, was very controversial. Dunaway had been involved in a number of uh, highly questionable shooting incidents uh, as a ranger. And then he pistol whipped a young man in Fredericksburg, Texas, and uh, was essentially, I think, forced to resign if he wasn't, you know, dropped from the muster. And uh, not long thereafter, he became an immigration officer. and He served in both Texas and in, later in Arizona. Uh, was sort of a precursor to the Border Patrol, the old Mounted Watchmen
0: crazy so all this is going on but what and and they're trying to fight and stop smuggling you know of liquor were they successful like because the reason i ask that is is you know there seems to be like more of them than there are of us and you know they're trying to patrol the border in an untamed area. Like they're like today there's roads that parallel the border, but then a lot of areas had lots and lots of open land. Was it easy or was it, was it difficult? Was it a difficult patrol?
1: It was an incredibly difficult patrol, you know, by some measure they were successful in the sense that customs officers and immigration officers. Now, by virtue of the fact that they were federal law enforcement officers, they had the authority to enforce the National Prohibition Act, the Volstead Act. And so while it wasn't specifically, like, the real idea of their job descriptions, you know, immigration officers uh and, you know, border patrol inspectors were primarily there to enforce the immigration laws. Uh, by virtue of the fact that they were on the border, and often the folks that were crossing the border... um, surreptitiously were also smuggling alcohol during this period and so they seized massive quantities of alcohol uh, some of it sort of uh, you know typical sort of or regional thing drinks like tequila the skull but also a lot of whiskey and alcohol that had been imported into mexico from distilleries in the united states ahead of january of 1920 so a lot of that booze made its way back across the Rio Grande. Um, they were successful up to a point, but it was uh, sort of a just a perpetual battle because it's a long border, and you have a relatively small force of officers that have to patrol that border, um, working either alone or in pairs or in you know uh, trios of officers later on, and it wasn't uncommon for two or three or four border patrol inspectors to go down to a popular crossing point along the river, either right within El Paso or other stretches of the border and have a gunfight with, you know, smugglers coming across the line that, you know, were escorted by gunmen that were meant to protect the shipment of alcohol. Um, and a large number of, Uh, federal officers were killed during the prohibition era something like 19 were killed just in el paso between 1919 and december of 1933 Uh, that's a lot of law enforcement officers to die in one city uh, during that period of time and that doesn't account for all of the officers that were killed or maimed or wounded uh, you know along that 2000 mile you know border Um, and of course they killed a lot of smugglers so there was a huge uh, attrition rate, a huge cost of human life associated with enforcing uh, a really almost unenforceable policy this idea that you're going to legislate your way into national sobriety is fairly preposterous Uh, but the consequences of that are that you have to have officers that enforce those laws and there are Incredible risks uh, associated with that during that time period.
0: Well, by now, you should be saying to yourself, my God, I got to get this book. Um, I've got to buy it. I've got to read it because it is packed full of photos. And um, so definitely going to want to get that. Tons of photos. And uh, if you're wondering, again, we're talking to Sam Dolan. Uh, He has written uh, a new book. It's called The Line Riders, The Border Patrol, Prohibition, and The Liquor War on the Rio Grande. Now, you can buy the book at Amazon. It's really the best place, especially if you're in Europe, you're overseas, you're living someplace where shipping is really expensive. I urge you to go on Amazon, buy the book there. Right now, I think it's around the 25 buck range. And so for 25 bucks you get it, plus minimal shipping on Amazon. And you can get get it delivered anywhere you live in the world. And so I really... Really urge you guys to get this one and get El Paso too, because the two of them together make a, a great pairing um, and you can really get to see and then what was the other the first book the first book is in paperback only I think right now
1: yeah, the first book is a paperback only it 's called Cowboys and Gangsters, Cowboys and, and uh, that book I cover lawlessness and crime in Arizona, New Mexico, and Texas, you know basically between about nineteen seventeen and uh, the early thirties
0: so all of this is available on Amazon. And again, we're talking to Sam Dolan. He has written the new book, or wrote the new book, uh, The Line Riders, The Border Patrol, Prohibition, and The Liquor War on the Rio Grande. Now, you had mentioned earlier uh, in a statement that they weren't just moving alcohol. I think there were cigars, mezcal, there was like all sorts of other goods, is that correct?
1: Oh, of course, I mean, as long as there's been an international boundary between you know the United States and Mexico, there has been at least some illicit trade along the border and uh, as you know way back in the eighteen hundreds um it was not unusual for smugglers to transport uh goods across the border in violation of the tariff laws uh because they were you know trying to avoid paying you know uh duty on those goods. Um, and sometimes customers didn't want to pay duty on those goods. So cigars, bolts of cloth, uh, various household goods uh, available in Mexico uh, at attractive prices were transported across the border every day. Now, some of this smuggling was kind of casual smuggling. You know, people, individuals would go across the border And they might be, you know, caught coming back across one of the bridges in El Paso uh, with, you know, things stuffed in their pockets or in the lining of their clothes. Um, More professional smugglers, uh, you know, generally cross the border in less populated areas, maybe with pack animals, uh, with ammunition, with, you know, uh, a lot of cigars, of course, mezcal and and tequila and, and other alcohol. Um, and there were run-ins and violent encounters between uh, customs officers and other lawmen uh, throughout the American West on the border um, and those smugglers. Um, generally, those offenders, you know, would be arrested. Um, they could be looking at a year or so in the federal penitentiary at Leavenworth, Kansas, Um uh, for some of them that was enough to curtail that you know particular part of their lives and their careers and some were uh career smugglers and i cover a couple of those in this book And these were uh, individuals whose smuggling careers sort of encapsulated that whole period um they may have uh, helped escort Chinese laborers across the river and into the United States in violation of the really odious uh, Chinese Exclusion Um, uh, They might have helped smuggle horses across the, the river or ammunition during the Mexican Revolution. And then some of these guys, uh, years later, into the 20s and 30s, were uh, helping smuggle uh, alcohol across the river or narc- narcotics Uh you know, during the prohibition era.
0: So as the line riders are growing, I would assume they're growing, they're bringing more people in more men into the line riders to enforce the border was pay really good. Like were they compensated really well? They're, they're putting their life on the line. So was pay decent enough to attract people, attract more men?
1: Uh, pay was, I mean, relatively modest. Um, I mean, it wasn't, you know, completely outrageous, but, uh, for example, I think about 1924, a customs inspector, so a customs, um, you know, mounted customs inspector made about, I think the annual salary was something like $1,800 per year. And an immigration officer who actually had to, was subject to civil service requirements, uh, their pay was a little bit less than that for doing very similar work. And that was about $1,600 or maybe almost $1,700 per annum. Uh, and there was at times a little bit of friction between officers of the two agencies. You know, today we talk about Customs and Border Patrol. The These the services have, you know, they've evolved. Uh, they're part of the Department of Homeland Security. Uh, there's a little more unity in sort of how all of that is organized. The, the organization of all of that is quite different. In the 1920s, you had sort of two separate, distinct agencies with overlapping duties. You had the customs officers and you had the immigration officers, members of the Border Patrol. And a lot of these officers knew each other. Some had served in, in both agencies at times uh some of these officers have, had served as texas rangers possibly together in years past uh but there were there were rivalries there are often jurisdictional rivalries just like there would be today between certain agencies and that could get pretty heated back then and especially so if you have officers that are not being paid a lot and they find out that um you know somebody they know that's working for the other services, maybe getting another $200 a year. That's, you know, that's a lot of money back then. That's a big difference. And, uh, yeah, there were, there were some, there was some friction between the two forces, but there were all, there was also a lot of examples where these officers worked together. Uh, they were in some of the same fights together. Uh, if an officer from one of the services was killed, officers from the other might help, uh, investigate that uh, with the other authorities involved. And so it wasn't always uh, a toxic situation, but there were times, especially in South Texas, uh, the collector of customs there uh, was a controversial figure and was at various times accused of uh, varying shades of corruption, uh, primarily by members of the Immigration Service and former members of the Customs Service.
0: So during this period, after the 18th Amendment, during this decade, 20s and 30s, there had to be some scrutiny though, right? They couldn't, they were doing this job, protecting the border. Was there scrutiny? Was there, was the public behind it? Was the public looking to officials? Was, you know, I I know I'm like, it's a broad brush thing but there couldn't have been a hundred percent where everybody was a hundred percent backing him. So was there a controversy?
1: Yeah, I would say there was, I mean, there were, <clears throat> there were just like there would be today. There were people who from the very beginning were not in favor of the national prohibition act who were not in favor of the state prohibition laws that were passed in many of the states around the country, not just along the border. Um, and so there were mixed feelings um throughout this time. And I think that especially as the Prohibition era wore on, I mean, f- sort of in terms of the 18th Amendment, you're talking like 13 years, which is a long time. Uh It's a long time for that amount of bloodshed throughout the country. And when it was all said and done... Collectively speaking, our country certainly just didn't have the willpower to, you know, continue to uh, fund the enforcement of a very, unpop- very unpopular legislation. Uh, you had multiple law enforcement agencies involved in the enforcement of the liquor laws. Uh, the Bureau of Internal Revenue, which, like the Customs Service, served under the Department of the Treasury, uh, had its own. Uh, law enforcement agencies specifically geared towards Prohibition. And they, of course, intermingled with the Border Patrol and the Customs Service in the Southwest. Um, the Prohibition Unit. These are the Prohibition agents that you often see uh, depicted in TV shows and movies. And these officers were somewhat hastily recruited and hired on uh, early in the uh, Prohibition era uh, without any regard to civil service uh, guidelines. So you had a mixture of of good officers like Frank Hamer. Uh, You mentioned John's book, uh, Texas Ranger, which is his biography of Frank Hamer. Uh, Frank Hamer, uh, Captain Charles Stevens, uh, both of them Texas Rangers. Uh, They left the Rangers in the early 20s and both became federal prohibition agents. Uh, So you had genuine lawmen that became uh, proies as they were known. Uh, You also had a lot of hacks and novices uh, managed to get uh, those jobs and there was a huge turnover rate there was a lot of corruption there were many agents that were arrested for a variety of crimes and prosecuted and those crimes uh, include of course violations of the liquor laws that they were sworn to uphold um, so there was corruption involved but then also homicide and assault and you know, misuse of firearms and all manner of things so very little uh, regulation over that agency, especially in the early 20s. Now, as the t- as time went on, there was reorganization. 1927, the Bureau of Prohibition was sort of reorganized and improved upon, and then it fell under Department of Justice uh, towards the end of the Prohibition era. But it was never an agency that was looked upon as a as a you know with a, a tremendous amount of respect. Anecdotally, uh, you know, I think that, you know, J. Edgar Hoover, who was the director of the FBI, was uh, very anxious about the idea that prohibition enforcement was going to fall under the FBI's mandate because of the sort of tarnished reputation that the Bureau of Prohibition had by the early 1930s. That's not to say that individual officers were very dedicated and quite a few uh were murdered or killed in in gunfights all over the country but especially along uh the Mexican border in El Paso in the spring of 1921 uh right in the immediate vicinity of the city both within the city and then up in sort of outside of Anthony New Mexico which which today is sort of almost a suburb of El Paso um you had uh four federal prohibition Agents uh, killed in the spring of 1921 during, like, a maybe a seven-week period. Uh, one of them, uh, Ernest Walker, was killed on Cordova Island, or the edge of Cordova Island, right, basically on the sort of in the southern part of the city or southeastern part of the city. Uh, he was shot and killed in an area that there were many, many gunfights. Uh, John Watson was killed on the highway, uh, or fatally wounded on the highway near Anthony. His partner Bernard Holzman had been a customs officer. His father had been a customs officer and I think worked for Pat Garrett, the sheriff that killed Billy the Kid who was a customs collector. And then Bernard Holzman survived that incident himself and he became a member of the Border Patrol. Uh, Two other um, prohibition agents, uh, Agent Woods and uh, Stafford Beckett, who had been a Texas Ranger, they were killed on a farm during a liquor raid in El Paso. And all of that happened... Uh, in like a seven-week period of time. Additionally, two members of the El Paso Police Department were murdered during that same you know, spring. Uh, so you had a... It was a very dangerous occupation, obviously, but among prohibition agents, you had a huge uh, attrition rate, and many of those agents were killed. But it was still an agency that had... Um, uh, it was sort of a tarnished group uh, the customs officers and the immigration officers, at least in the Southwest, they had a better reputation, but they weren't without, you know, scrutiny during that time. There were shooting incidents that were questionable. There were officers that were uh, prosecuted. Um, I cover a, a couple of those incidents in my book. In Arizona in 1929, uh, a trio of uh, patrol inspectors. Uh, shot and killed a young man near Silverbell which is outside of Tucson and um that young man was unarmed and it was it really upset the citizens there um and if you look over the records the coroner's inquest files the reports you know 1929 you're talking almost a full decade of enforcement of these liquor laws and you can tell that you know people have sort of had it with this idea that, you know, there's such a high attrition rate among people getting killed, you know, on the border. Now there's still a lot of respect. Anytime an officer was killed, there was usually a, you know, public outpouring of grief, which is, you know, reasonable and, and, you know, totally understandable and right. Um, but the laws they were enforcing were never completely popular. And, You know, it was never going to end until it it finally did. You know, Mm -hmm. a big platform for the Democratic Party uh, heading into the 1932 election was the end of Prohibition. Um, That was a big deal. Even after Volstead and the 18th Amendment were repealed, there was still violence on the border associated with liquor. Texas still had the Dean Law for several years, which was their state prohibition law. So there were still restrictions uh, on certain alcohol. And as a result, these federal officers, members of the Border Patrol, members of the Customs Service, uh, were still having shootouts with uh, liquor smugglers months, years after uh, most of us think of the Prohibition era ending.
0: Well, you covered maybe the
1: longest answer in the world.
0: (laughs) Well, but you you covered a lot because I was going to ask you about, you know, not only the 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 scrutiny you know about prohibition but the scrutiny which you which was about the li- the line riders themselves on the way that they handled things because in your book you just you made mention that there was like very little training like like they didn't go to a formal school of any kind it was pretty much you're on a horse great you're hired you know and and it was more to that. But but you covered that part because I would assume not every day did a line writer do everything by the book. And you covered that in the world's longest answer.
1: <laughs> yeah, I did. I'm sorry for that. But that was, okay. uh, it was a bit of a ramble. But no, you're right. The training training for a long time was, was pretty limited. You know, towards the end of the prohibition era, into the early thirties. Uh, the Immigration Service established in El Paso a more formal, uh, formal training school for members of the Border Patrol, uh, with emphasis on the law, uh, on police procedure, on marksmanship, on you know immigration policy, on Spanish and and foreign language, uh, and they made huge improvements uh, over that agency as they headed into the 30s and in the years before World War II. Um, but for most of the period of time covered in the book, and especially in the years even before the Prohibition era, there was very little training. You might uh, you might take some lessons in Spanish. You might go out into the desert with an older officer and fire a few practice rounds. Um, if you were a member of the Border Patrol in the twenties, if you didn't own a gun, you were going to draw you know a nineteen seventeen Colt News Service uh they've been provided to the agency from the army after World War One. Most officers would go and buy their own weapons. So there wasn't like this sort of modern standardization of equipment. They started to wear uniforms, uh both the border the immigration border patrol and the customs service started to wear uniforms more regularly during the mid to late nineteen twenties. Um and they had badges. But beyond that, there was not a lot of formal training, and, and nothing like a modern-day uh, law enforcement, you know, officer receives. You know, even a, a a police officer in a small town anywhere in the United States, they generally go to a certified, you know, a certified police academy to get state certification, and that's many weeks, if not months, of training, and then and then constant training throughout their careers. Um, officers back. Back then, it was still very much the Old West, and there wasn't hardly any of that training uh, available to these officers.
0: Well, there was a note in history that says, when appointees began taking civil service exams in the 1890s, newspapers mocked the process. Oh, sure. Here was the requirement. The requirements of work that are a line rider must know the border, that he'd be handy with a horse, a good judge of contraband, mezcal and cigars, something of a trailer, meaning he's out following the trail of a bad guy or somebody that's smuggling, whatever, contraband, and a fighter when in comfortable quarters with smugglers. So, you know... Th- No offense, I mean, if somebody's offended by the word, like, that dude was a badass, like, holy crap. You know, he's out there on a horse by himself in the middle of nowhere, taking on, not the greatest people, for very little pay. Like, that's Badass 101.
1: Yeah, Jeff Milton, for example, who uh, is a very famous lawman in the American West. Um, He was a Texas Ranger. Uh, I was an express messenger for Wells Fargo. John Bosnecker has uh, written about Jeff Milton. I've written about Jeff Milton. He was the chief of police in El Paso at one point, deputy United States marshal. In the late 1880s, he was appointed as a mounted customs inspector to patrol the border in Arizona. And his salary was $3 per day, plus you know like an additional 50 cents for horse and feed that's Whoa. a pretty modest, modest you know salary for dangerous work i mean it's outrageous so even even then and there were no it was a direct appointment and so there really were no uh, you know requirements to take any kind of exams or anything well in the 1890s uh they started to impose stricter civil service regulations on these uh, on this department the customs service And so officers or prospective officers found themselves having to take examinations that many of them who would otherwise have been qualified based on the standards of that newspaper statement, uh, they could ride horses, maybe they'd serve as a deputy sheriff, they could handle a gun. They were good judge of contraband. Mm -hmm. Um, They couldn't pass these exams. And so the collectors would complain because they're like, well, look, I'm going to get a bunch of school teachers as lawmen, I need people that can actually handle the requirements of this job. So in the early 1900s, they did away uh, with the uh, civil service requirements, if you will, for those customs officers. And they went back to a system where collectors uh, with with quite a bit of latitude could appoint uh, officers as customs inspectors. Immigration Service, which became a separate service from the Treasury and Customs in the early 1900s, they didn't do that, so those those officers still had to go through that process. But Customs Officers did not. And so it was very typical of a former Texas Ranger to apply or be appointed to one of these uh, positions as a Mounted Customs Inspector with very little... Uh, testing or examination, uh, anything like that. And so it was, for them, it was a very translatable job. It was very similar. Well, I've been the border as a Texas Ranger and lived in the outdoors and had a pack horse. And I guess I could just keep doing that for more money uh, working for the Department of the Treasury. Crazy.
0: At one point, was the military ever brought in to assist the Line Riders, or was the Line Riders enough?
1: The Army had, especially in the, in the period I cover in the Line Riders, the book, the Army had a significant presence on the border during the 1910s and into the 1920s. They already had formal sort of installations like Fort Huachuca and Fort Bliss and mm-hmm. Uh, other military installations, you know, along or near the border. And so there had been the presence of the Army for many years. Uh, Of course, there was a significant mobilization effort uh, in the years prior to America's entry into World War I, and that was because of the Mexican Revolution. And so by, you know, during the 1910s, in addition to the regular Army, uh, you had a lot of National Guard units from all over the country that were sent to the border. Uh, some of that occurred during the like the era of the punitive expedition, which was when uh, Pershing went into Mexico after Pancho Villa following the attack on Columbus, New Mexico. But you had a lot of other troops that were just posted near the border in places like Douglas, Arizona, and uh, you know near El Paso. And early in the Prohibition era, a lot of those soldiers would get into fights with smugglers. And so a lot of these early battles, uh, there were soldiers that would never hear a shot fired in anger in France, but heard a lot of shots fired in anger along the Rio Grande in these little firefights with gangs of smugglers that were coming across the border, um, either coming into the United States with liquor or crossing from the United States back into Mexico with other goods uh, that were in high demand. Uh, lard, foodstuffs, ammunition, other things that were in demand, uh, during the later years of the revolution down there. Um, so yeah, the army had a presence. They, they kind of participated in this, uh, sort of battle along the river over liquor. They didn't interact too much officially with customs officers occasionally in, in late 1910s, early 1920s. There were some interactions where you know, it might be a big fight and troops might, you know, come out, uh, there was a shootout in smelter town up near the Asarco smelter in El Paso, where a handful of immigration officers got into a really bad, uh, gunfight there. A couple of them were wounded. And, um, one of the officers uh, basically appealed to a Lieutenant, uh, of a unit that was posted at the smelter. And that Lieutenant took a detail down to the river and those soldiers spent the entire night. Uh, trading shots across the river with these uh, smugglers, uh, and two of the soldiers were were pretty badly wounded during that fight.
0: Crazy, I'm telling you, an amazing story. Of course, we're talking to Sam Dolan. Uh, you can get his book on Amazon. It's called The Line Riders: The, Bo- the Border Patrol, Prohibition, and the Liquor War on the Rio Grande. Now, it's available at booksellers near you. The reason why we, we talked to you about Amazon, especially if you're listening all over the world, anywhere that you're listening to is it really reduces shipping, um, costs. And, and it's just, just, I'm telling you, and wait till you see the cover, the cover. Let, let me ask you, we got about 10 minutes left. The picture sure. on the cover. What picture is that?
1: And that picture, uh, comes from the Arizona Historical Society and it's a photograph. Uh, in the Earl Fallis uh, collection uh, he had served along the border both in Texas and in Arizona he was a pretty well known member of the Immigration Service he took a lot of photos and uh, the Arizona Historical Society has a good number of those and in that photograph you see a patrol inspector I believe it's Carson Morrow on the cover he's holding the rifle right? Uh, and they are uh, disarming and apprehending uh, three Individuals. I'm not going to call them smugglers because there's not a lot of information about the photo. And in fact, I don't know if it's a real incident or if it's staged, but it's very typical of the types of encounters that these officers had um, where they've got pack animals. And if you look closely, the Moro's partner is pulling an automatic pistol out of the waistband of one of those guys. Uh, yeah, that picture yeah, comes really from cool the, uh, the Arizona Historical Society, which is you know, gosh, a well-known institution. And they have a wonderful, uh, archives and a wonderful, uh, selection of photographs. And that, that comes from, uh, from those folks there in Tucson. It's an
0: awesome, it's an awesome.
1: Morrow was quite an officer. The, the fellow holding the rifle, and, uh, early 1929, he was on the border near Nogales and had an encounter and somebody stabbed him in the chest And uh, Morrow got out his automatic pistol and shot uh, his assailant dead and then walked back to his vehicle, which was quite a ways off, uh, to try to get help. So, yeah, he was a pretty tough character, and he was on the border for a long time. He was a pretty well-known officer uh, in the 30s and well after that, I think, in the the 40s.
0: Well, I want to thank you, uh, one, for coming on. And I also want to thank you for putting photos in the book. Like there's a lot of photos in the book. And I think photos add in to the person who's reading, especially like me who doesn't really know a lot about it. And then they're able to read it and they're able to put a face or a picture with it. It's really a beautiful, beautiful book. And and maps, you've got maps in there. You've got everything in there explaining about what's going on. It's it's really fantastic. Um. What do you got coming up?
1: Well, I'm working on a couple of things. I have some articles I've written for uh, the Tombstone Epitaph, and one that I finished uh, the other day, and a couple that are works in progress. And then uh, I have another book uh, that I'm working on, uh, at least the proposal for and doing a lot of research for, and that'll kind of, again, cover Borderlands uh, topics uh, that are sort of peripheral and connected to some of these other events. So I'm getting pretty excited about that and that'll take me back down to Texas this year a couple of times. So I'm excited about a trip back down there, of course. And, uh, yeah, so I try to, I try to keep busy. Of course, I, I work as a television producer which is my day job for a great company, Worm Springs productions. And so that's my full-time work. And, uh, that's obviously there's a lot that goes into that, but, uh, yeah, as a writer, I, I try to keep uh, a few projects in the works and, uh, I love doing the research and diving into these stories. So, yeah, I've got a couple things I'm working
0: on. Well, when you become big, big, like really big, and you're, I like we talked about on the uh, pre-interview, and you're in your private jet and you fly over Phoenix, at least wave to me, make me feel good.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I don't know too many. I don't know too many guys that uh, that do this sort of thing to get that big. But if it happens, I will for sure do that.
0: <laughs> well, you you are an Emmy winner
1: that's Aren't, that's true you know you do have that um, we true. talked about it on the
0: first interview
1: so, yeah that's uh that's correct and you know i'm obviously i'm proud of that but yeah no I'm, okay. I'm just a work-a-day you know nonfiction tv producer and i write these books and, and work on this history because I, I love it and i think that's common amongst uh, a lot of what i'd like to think of as peers you know people like chuck parsons and bob alexander and Uh, John Boznecker and Eric Wright. You know we love uh, this history and uh, we love telling these stories and diving into the research. And uh, it's because of that love for that material that's why I, you know, I work on these books and I like sharing these stories.
0: Well, I'm glad you do. If you want to find a lot more about Sam, you can go to Samuel, and that's S A M U E L K Dolan. Dolan dot com Samuel K Dolan dot com. He has a website, um, and you can kind of see what's going on. He's got some cool stuff happening, and you know you can't order books there, but you can see the cool stuff that's happening. And of course, he's got his new book out called "The Line Riders: The Border Patrol, Prohibition, and the Liquor War on the Rio Grande." That's available on Amazon. Is um, it's going to be a loaded question? I didn't ask the first time, but it's been kind of fun because I've been asking uh, writers. um, Is there something about you that only you and your family would know that you would want to share? For example, when I asked that question to Chuck Parsons, Chuck said that he loves going to this little restaurant by his house where they have deep fried mushrooms with ranch dressing, and I'm like, "Holy crap, Chuck! I'm on the way." <laughs> is there something wow, that- about? Is there something about you that, um, you know, it's you know, I don't obviously don't want to tell family secrets, but something that maybe you and the friend, your friends know about Sam that the rest of the public doesn't know, like a favorite food or um, a favorite place you like to go, or you know. A watering Wow, hole. that is
1: a that's a great question, Mike. Um, <laughs> man, I'm trying to think of something uh, that would be along those lines. Uh, other than the fact that I just have a great sense of humor and I'm hilarious most oh, of the time, I'm trying to think of something here that uh, might be
0: like, for example,
1: interesting. I, I uh, shared
0: this one with with the group a while back. I said, um, I "I used to work at Wendy's. I grew up in Garden Grove, California, which is down by Disneyland. And I worked at Wendy's, and Wendy's French fries dipped in a vanilla Frosty is so freaking good. And people were like, what? And I'm like, yeah, I'm telling you, just try it. It sounds disgusting. And then they tried it, and they went, yeah, that's not bad. And that's where my... Little Wendy's secrets is I like dipping French fries in a vanilla frosty.
1: Oh wow. Yeah. I wish I had something like that. I'm sure if I thought about it more, I would come up uh, with something that would be fun to share. I uh, just am sort of drawing
0: That's okay.
1: I'm drawing a blank, well, but uh for the next time. Yeah, it's funny about Chuck. Uh wow. It's good to know though.
0: <laughs> yeah, we even I even asked um Dr. Gary Roberts. I said if you could get in a time machine. And go back anywhere. Where would you go? And he said he would like to go back to to Doc's earliest days, where a lot of the documents were lost, and ask Not him sure. certain questions about his childhood. Um, you know, they're just fun questions. And you know, I was just I think I think you having a great sense of humor um, because we only know you for the hour that we're speaking, and and about your books and whatnot. So it's good to know that you've got a great sense of humor. Um, again, we're talking to, uh, Sam Dolan. You can find his book, which is called, uh, the line Rider, uh, the border patrol prohibition and the liquor war on the Rio Grande. You can find it's 416 pages. So it's not going to be a fast read. It's going to be a big, thick, thick read, uh, which means it's chock full of information and diagrams and maps and pictures. And you're going to love this one. And you can get it at Amazon, it goes for around 25 bucks. You're going to want to read it and probably do like I've done before with El Paso. I use El Paso now as a study guide or a reference guide. When I'm reading someone else's book about Texas, I'll say, oh my gosh, I know about that. And I'll go back to El Paso and reread a certain area. Cause it kind of, they go hand in hand and you might end up doing the same with this. That's why I recommended you get El Paso and get this one together because They're like a companion piece. Uh, I think it's going to be exactly what you're going to need. So as always, you can find me um, on Instagram at Cochise County Travels. You can also find me on YouTube at Cochise County Travels. This podcast will be on YouTube in the next week or so, or maybe even today. And uh, you can find the podcast on Apple iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, and the iHeartRadio app. We're broadcast in six countries. So you can find me anywhere on the World Wide Web. Um, and, you know, if you go to Stitcher or you go to Spotify or iTunes, please hit that subscribe button or the follow button and leave a rating and a review because it does help with distribution. As always, I appreciate Sam. And the next time he's got something coming up, I will beg and plead because by then he'll be up in the airplane waving down at the little people <laughs> in, in Phoenix. No, that's not true. And uh, But I urge you to to do do go back to the June 11th 2022 uh interview because he's got a fascinating story about his dad working in the movie Tombstone uh his some of his projects that he's been working on for television he's got an amazing background and you're going to want to re- listen to that one because he's got an amazing story anything else sir before we go
1: no, that should cover it, Mike. Other than I just wanted to thank you once again for including me. I enjoyed our conversation today, and oh, thank, thank you, you so much. And thank you for what you do for, you know, the, you know, the history of the Wild West and and showcasing all of these great historians.
0: Well, and I learned from you guys and gal women, men and women. I learned from you because I'm a I'm a listening person. So when I can listen to it and I can put it to a book, it doubles. The learning and the way I retain stuff. And I think a lot of people are the same way. So happy new year to everybody. Come back in January, 2023. We've got an amazing man lined up. If everything goes as well that you're going to want to hear. And in February, holy cow, February comes through and all the stars in the line, you're going to want to hear what's coming at the coming up at the end of February. It's going to be a fantastic interview. So I thanks so much. I appreciate you a bunch until next time. Safe travels and we'll see you soon.